Let's pray together. Father, we know that affliction will be part of our lives here. We pray that you would help us to respond as the psalmist does. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond as those who have a loving father who disciplines his children, training them for righteousness. So we commit ourselves to you and ask that you would teach our hearts from your word by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. How we respond to affliction reveals what we think of God. I'm going to say that again. How we respond to affliction reveals what we think of God. And we know that affliction awaits us. The Apostle Paul told the churches that he planted, it is through much tribulation that you must enter the kingdom of God. Affliction is going to be part of our experience. People that we love are going to die. We are going to expect to be healthy and find ourselves debilitated in various ways. This past week, uh, I went to Australia last week. This past week, part of the affliction that I've had to endure is waking up in the middle of the night and then being weary all day. And when I'm weary, my fuse tends to be shorter than it ought to be. It's, it's affliction. And, and how we respond to affliction reveals what we think of God. So I just want to set up an analogy here for you, an analogy between uh, parents and their children, and between God and you. And what, the way I'd like for us to come at this is to think in terms of when things come into our lives that we don't expect, that we don't want, that catch us off guard, that we were not prepared for, when these things happen to us, we want to respond to our Father the way that children who love their parents should respond to their parents. We want to respond as, as children who know my parents love me, my parents want what's best for me, and I can trust my parents in this situation. That's the way we need to respond when we face affliction. I would invite you to open the Bible this morning to Psalm 119. We are making our way. We're still on the, the upward climb on this massive pyramid of this uh, 176 verse psalm, and uh, we we saw in verses one through eight, uh, the psalmist lay out the good life, and the good life is a life of walking in obedience to God's commands. And then in verses nine through sixteen, the second section, which is related to the first, what he said was, "I want to live that life. How can I live that life by keeping it according to God's word?" And then it seems to me that what the psalm is doing is it's, it's suggesting that the good life is going to be a life in accordance with God's word under God's king. So if you look at Psalm 119, verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live. I think the servant here is uh, 
my servant David, so to speak. I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily I think David is the author of the psalm. It's not attributed to anyone in particular. But I think that the, the speaker in the psalm is presented as a Davidic king. And I think that the, um, the references that we're going to see throughout this psalm to the servant of the Lord are, should, should call to mind for us, if you think of the words of 2 Samuel 7, when the Lord commissions Nathan to go to David, he says, go and tell my servant David. So we should think of the servant David, and we should think of the servant of the Lord that Isaiah prophesies about in Isaiah 40 through 66. You know, this servant figure in Isaiah 53 who's going to bear our sins and, and carry our iniquities and so forth. So, so these references to the servant join with uh, allusions, I think, to Psalms 1 and Psalm 2 here in verses 17 through 24 to, to hint at the messianic hope. So we're looking at, at life under God's law, under the reign of God's king. And, and I would suggest that this whole section from verses 17 through 48 that we looked at the last time I was in the pulpit here, uh, this whole section is concerned with the messianic hope. So look at verse 38, for instance. Confirm to your servant your promise. What's the promise made to the king from David's line? That he's going to reign, that his throne will be established, and that when he reigns, the enemies will be subdued, the, the, the serpent's head will be crushed, and, and the people will be free to live in righteousness. And then I think that verse 41 is also an appeal for this. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation, according to your promise. Salvation that's going to be achieved by the king from David's line that will be an expression of God's steadfast love for God's people. So I would say that, that in, in that section, there are uh, these four eight-verse units from verse 17 through 48. And in that section, the psalmist is crying out for the Lord to keep his promise to his servant, and he's looking for the day when the king from David's line is going to reign. In this, this section that we're considering this morning, verses 49 through 80, this is a section that focuses on affliction. So look at verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction. Verse 67, before I was afflicted. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Verse 75, at the end of the verse, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. I think what the psalmist is dealing with is the way that we have these promises of this glorious future under the reign of the Davidic king. And while we wait for the realization of those promises, we're dealing with affliction. So as we, as we approach this text, um, I, I want to I draw your attention to a number of statements in Proverbs to set up this idea that, that uh, we're like the children of God. This is what the Bible says that we are. And our Father is disciplining us. So I just want to put these thoughts from uh, Proverbs before you. And there's a, I've got kind of a dual motive here. One, this is to say that when the Father disciplines us, it's because He loves us. And then there's a sort of subsidiary motive to say, parents, you should discipline your children. So I'm just going to read through these statements. Uh, the first one that I would draw your attention to, you don't have to turn there. Uh, but if you'd like to look at it, it's Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. And the text says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. It's like Solomon knows. People don't discipline their children because they think, I love my child too much to discipline him. And he says, actually, if, you, if you're not disciplining, disciplining your child, you're hating him. But 
if you love him, you'll be diligent to discipline him. And, and there are people, aren't they, who think and feel things like this. If God loved me, my life wouldn't look this way. If God loved me, this would not be happening to me. And, and, and what we need to think is the Lord is, is training me. The Lord is growing me. The Lord is seeking to change me for something better down the road. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. God doesn't hate us. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Uh, the next one I would have you think about with me. If you want to turn there, it's Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18, where Solomon says, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. What he's saying is, if you, do, if you decide, I am not going to discipline this child, you are setting your heart on him receiving the death penalty and going to hell. Discipline him. There is hope for him to be changed. Discipline your son, Proverbs 19, verse 18, for there is hope. When we face affliction, we should think to ourselves, there is hope. I, I know in the moment it strikes, in the moment you get the bad news, in the, I know it's not going to be the first thought that comes to mind. That's okay. There's going to be time to reflect. And as you reflect on what you're going through, you should think, God loves me. God is disciplining me because there's hope. And God is not putting his heart, God is not setting his heart on putting me to death. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. We are foolish people. We think we're going to live forever. We think this life is all there is to live for. We think that sin is actually going to please us. Folly is bound up in the heart of, of a child, and the rod of discipline drives it far from him. God is going to use the rod of affliction, the rod of discipline, to drive these things out of our hearts. He's a loving father. Proverbs 23, verse 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Uh, Solomon is saying, there is something worse than you striking that child with a rod. Now, the Bible is not, is not advocating disciplining children in anger. It, it's been our experience that if, if we issue a directive and the directive is flaunted, it's not followed, if we will, if we will require instant willing obedience, first-time obedience with a happy heart attitude, and, and if we will consistently enforce that, we don't get angry. We don't get angry. We can calmly and appropriately administer the rod, which I would commend to you. But if you don't, if you don't enforce first-time obedience, what's going to happen is you're going to get frustrated. And about the ninth time, when your veins are bulging and your face is red and steam is coming out your ears, now you're in danger of disciplining and anger. And, and that's, that's when things go awry. Don't do that. Don't be a fool. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. I would submit to you that God means to afflict us in this life to save us from Sheol. Last one I would, I would put before your mind. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof 
give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The rod and reproof give wisdom. God means to impart wisdom through us. And, and you know, it's different. The, the analogy is not perfect, right? Uh, God is not a visible, physically present father in our lives administering discipline to us by means of the rod. But the afflictions that he brings into our lives, I submit to you, are meant to cause us to experience wisdom. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Verse 17, disciplining your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Happy parents discipline their children. I think it's safe to say that. Uh, uh, Disciplined children are a blessing. Undisciplined children typically are not a blessing. They're out of control. They're rude. Uh, so, so there, there it is. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. God is a good and loving father. Now with these thoughts sort of in front of us, let me invite you to look back at Psalm 119 and we'll begin in, in verse 49. And in Psalm 119, verse 49, the psalmist, I think, is crying out for that messianic hope. He's crying out for the promises made to the king from David's line to be remembered. Look at verse 49. Remember your word to your servant. Again, I would suggest that the servant is the Davidic king. And what the psalmist is saying is, Lord, you said Israel would reign. You said that righteousness would be established in our land. You said we were going to have a king on the throne. Remember your word for, to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is our hope, Lord. Where is it? Verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction. So, so things are obviously not the way the psalmist wants them to be. But he's hoping in a promise, look at the end of verse 50, that gives life. Your promise gives me life. I think that he's, he's picking up on the fact that this future reign of the Davidic king implies resurrection from the dead, a return to Edenic situations. And he's expecting that when the promise is realized, he's going to have life indeed. And he's taking comfort in the midst of affliction now in the knowledge that things are going to be better in the future. Verse 51, the insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Last night, Jill and I were talking about this passage, and she helpfully said to me, you need to define the word insolent. Uh, so so this, is, this is good for me to, to consider. So I'm just going to read to you the de- definition from dic- dictionary.com, the app on my phone, insolent. Boldly rude or disrespectful, contemptuously impertinent, insulting. Now with that in mind, boldly rude or disrespectful, let me, let me draw your attention to the other references to the insolent in this psalm. Look at verse 21. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. So these are people who, who depart from the Bible's teaching. Uh, In verse 51, they're utterly deriding the psalmist. Look at verse 69. The insolent smear me with lies. Verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame. Verse 85. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. 
And then, uh, I may be missing one, but I think I'm seeing one in 122, Psalm 119, verse 122, let not the insolent oppress me. And that may be the, other, the only other one. But, uh, so the insolent, they're boldly rude, they've rejected God's word, and they're opposing God's people. They're opposing God's people and opposing the gospel. And, and they're impertinent, and they don't care about what God says. Verse 51, the insolent utterly deride me. These are people that look at, at this man who's trying to walk with God, He's trying to hope in God's promises. He's trying to bring about God's, God's purposes and, and bring about what God intends in the world. And their response is, you are wasting your time. You are wasting your life. You're not living for what's really satisfying. And then they're, they're trying to make him the bad guy. And they deride him. And his response is, at the second half of verse 51, but I do not turn away from your law. I'm going to be faithful to the scriptures. Uh, insolent people can be terribly discouraging. When they, boldly rude, impertinent people who, who communicate to you, and, and I think this is part of the, look at verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction. So the, these insolent people, what they're saying, this is part of the affliction that the psalmist is dealing with. And, and, and it could be that he's weary, and it could be that he's being told, everything that you stand for, you're terrible at it. And everything that you stand for is all mistaken. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Why does he not turn away from the law? Because that's where the promises are. That's where the indications are about what things are going to be like in the future, right? That's where the standards are that he's hoping are going to be established when the future king reigns. That's where the promise, the life-giving promise at the second half of verse 50 is. Verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Do you hear what's happening for this guy? The Bible is comforting him. In the face of insolent opponents, the Bible is reassuring him. Uh, the second four verses of this, this first eight-verse unit uh, indicate more of the response to uh, the insolent. So verse 53, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked. I think the wicked are the insolent. And now what he's feeling is, is frustration that's, that's flowing out in indignation toward these people who forsake your law. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. This week in our, in our house, we've been memorizing together Proverbs 28, verse 4, which says, those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. You want to strive against the wicked? Obey the Bible. You want to praise the wicked? You want to say, yeah, the wicked have the right idea. The wicked are the smart people. The wicked are the people that we should envy forsake the law. That's what you're doing if you forsake the law. And the psalmist is saying, this is what the wicked do. They forsake the law. But then look at verse 54. This is a remarkable verse. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Uh, the word for songs there is, is, is the word that, that we get our word psalm from. Your statutes have been my psalms in the house of my sojourning. 
So these songs of hope, these songs of God, God's promises, these songs of, of God's standards, these songs that celebrate God's character, that's, all, that's what he's seeing in the statutes. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. And thus, verse 55, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. Uh, the night, this is when it's easy to be discouraged. You ought to be sleeping. <laughs> You'd like to be experiencing refreshing, renewing sleep. This is something that has been escaping me this week because my, my body was turned upside down when I went to the other side of the globe. Uh, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. If we can remember God's name in the night, we can bear up under the affliction that we have to endure. And then look at verse 56. This blessing has fallen to me, that I have kept your precepts. You know, you almost get the sense that this guy is an old man, and it's almost like the Apostle Paul. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. This blessing has fallen to me, that I have kept your precepts. This, would be, this is a great thing to be able to say at the end of a life. At the end of a life, this has been my blessing, that I have obeyed the Scriptures. And then in keeping with that, this next eight-verse section, look at what he says in verse 57, the Lord is my portion. So we can think in terms of the insolent who have forsaken the law, that they're deriding him, the wicked have, have, have departed from God's commandments, and what the psalmist is saying is God is my reward, God is my portion, God is what I will inherit. The Lord is my, my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. He is not trying to get the favor of the insolent. He is not trying to placate the wicked. That would entail departure from God's commandments. What he's trying to do is achieve God's favor. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. There's that, I think this promise refers to all that God has said he's going to accomplish through the seed of the woman who's the seed of Abraham, who's the descendant of Judah, seed of David. Ultimately, we know this to be Jesus. And then in verse 59, he says, when I think on my ways... I turn my feet to your testimonies. This word turn is a word that's often rendered uh, repent. I repent and, and, return, and, and I, re I turn my feet to your testimonies when I think on my ways. This is a man who is contemplating the scriptures and he's being reproved and he's redirecting himself toward God's testimonies. And then here's this this uh, first-time obedience in verse 60, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. There, there, there's a, a willingness and a readiness to do what God has said. Verse 61, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. I, I love these, these stories about these believers who have uh, been taken into captivity or they've been put in prison and what they do in prison is they meditate on the scriptures. They, they may be there unjustly, they may be there at the hands of a wicked uh, government. I'm thinking of this one story in particular of this man who was um, 
He was taken into captivity by a wicked government in Russia, and what he did there was he memorized the Bible in Hebrew. He memorized the Old Testament in Hebrew. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Verse 62 is like verse 55. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. And then verse 63, I hope everybody in this room feels verse 63. I hope that, you know, some... I'll just be frank with you. It frustrates me when Christians talk down other Christians. It bothers me. I don't like it when, well, I don't care who they are. They may be academics. They may be pastors. They may be lay people. And they talk as though the problem with the world is the church. I don't like that. I don't like that talk. Because I feel, verse 63, I'm a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. I'm not saying Christians are perfect. I'm not saying churches are perfect. But these are God's people. And in my experience, Christians are the people that are, that are ready to acknowledge what righteousness is in accordance with the Bible. Christians are the people who are ready to repent when you show them that they're out of step with the Bible. And Christians are actually the people that are ready to lay down their lives and serve others. So it bothers me when people talk down Christians. I want to say, what standard of righteousness are you applying? Do you see more repentant hearts outside the church than you see in the church? And do you see... Do you really see more genuine love for people outside the church than in the church? What, what is going on with you? We want to feel verse 63. I'm a companion of all who fear you. And you know, you may be in the wrong, but I'll be in the wrong with you. And, and we'll get this right together. I'm a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. What I'm saying is we ought to identify with one another. We ought to identify more with one another than we do with those people out there that want to critique these people in here. I'm a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. And then verse 64. This is another way of saying that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, the name of the Lord is going to be praised. This is another way of saying that as the waters cover the sea, the, the, the earth is going to be full of the glory of God. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Do you know what's implied here? When he says, the earth is full of your steadfast love, teach me your statutes. He's saying, your statutes, your standards, these are expressions of your steadfast love. This is the way we want to think about honor your father and mother. Which, by the way, is like a, a statement that says, relate correctly to authority. And then it sort of serves as an umbrella for all kinds of authority, whether we're talking about uh, the king or the priest or the prophet or uh, people over you at work, whatever. One way to express honor your father and mother is to relate appropriately in the hierarchy. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes so that I can live out your steadfast love. Verse 65, this next uh, unit. Um, the psalmist uh, is going to start honing in on affliction. Verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. This is kind of a peculiar statement, isn't it? We're used to hearing things like, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe in the teaching of the Bible. I believe in your commandments. You know what I think he's saying? I think he's saying, 
I believe that your commandments are the right way to live. Which, if you consider the commandments, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. I believe in these things, right? He's he's embracing the teaching of the Scriptures. And then verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Uh, This is a man who's acknowledging before the Lord brought the rod of his discipline into my life, I went astray. I wandered. But now I keep your word. And then this prompts the, the confession, which, you know, as we, as we think about these statements, we can, we can acknowledge the way that affliction often causes people to question God. Affliction can, can prompt us to question Are the promises going to be kept? Do the promises apply here to me? Am I I in right standing with God? Is that what my affliction means? Sometimes affliction can cause people to doubt God's character. Is he trustworthy? Is he good? Would, Would a good God do this to me? And look at what the psalmist is saying here in verse 68. You are good and do good. It's like the psalmist is saying, yeah, I'm I'm afflicted and I'm recognizing I was in the wrong, but now I want to adhere to your word and that's because you're good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. There's an emphasis on God's goodness all through this eight-verse unit. Look at verse 65. You have dealt well. That's the word for good in Hebrew. Uh, verse 56, teach me good judgment. Verse 68, you are good and do good. Verse 71, it is good. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is more good, literally, better to me. So God's goodness is a strong theme in this, this unit. And then again in verse 69, he brings up the insolent. The insolent smear me with lies. But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. I think what the psalmist is saying is, that's what the insolent are going to do. And this is what I'm going to do. And and I think what he's saying is, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to try to go put out the fires. I'm going to devote myself to the law. Their heart, verse 70, is unfeeling like fat. They're unsympathetic. They refuse to understand. They refuse to allow any kind of explanation to mitigate the, the righteous indignation that they feel. There's nothing I can do about that. But I delight in your law. Note, notice the delight. I delight in your law. This is like Psalm 1, isn't it? Blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. I delight in your law. And then verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The affliction, you know, the psalmist, he doesn't tell us what the affliction was. Um, So I don't know. I don't know if he's suffering physically, um, as Job did. I don't know if he suffered the death of children, as Job suffered. I don't know if his wife has died, as Ezekiel's wife did. I don't know if if his wife has told him to curse God, as Job's wife did, 
I don't know what the affliction is. But something that was unwanted, something undesirable and unpleasant, he's saying, you use that for good. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The affliction has driven him to a closer attention to the Scriptures. And then this leads to verse 72. The law of your mouth. The, the, the word for law here is Torah, which can mean instruction. It's not just, you know, legislation. The, the, the Torah of your mouth. That's a beautiful formulation. That's a formulation, that's a way of saying that God gave the Scriptures. The Torah of your mouth, the law of your mouth. The Bible comes from God. Yes, yes, human beings wrote it. Like People like Moses wrote it. But it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was given from God Himself. And I'm seeing that in this phrase here, the law of your mouth. And he says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Um, I, I, I suspect that everybody in this room can acknowledge that a lot of good could be done with a lot of money, thousands of gold and silver pieces. Maybe everybody in this room I mean, has felt at some level, at some time, a desire to be wealthy. Probably. And the psalmist is saying, the Scriptures are better than great wealth. The Scriptures can do more good than great wealth. The Scriptures can bring more happiness than all the benefits of having a lot of money, a lot of resources at your disposal. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In the final unit that we'll consider this morning, uh, the psalmist says here in verse 73, your hands have made and fashioned me. You're my creator. And then his response to this, you created me, you know what's necessary for me, what's good for me, so, middle of verse 73, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. I think he's acknowledging here that sometimes as we read the scriptures, things don't make sense to us. They seem to be counterintuitive. We're commanded to do things like bless those who curse you, bless and do not curse. We're commanded to do things like um, uh, take up the cross and follow Jesus, things that look unpleasant, things that look undesirable. And what he's saying is, you made me, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments so that I'll understand the rationale. And then a result of this, verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Your people will be made glad at the way that I live when I understand the Bible and live it out. This is like... Verse 63, I'm a companion of all who fear you. Verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. God's people will rejoice over those who keep God's word. Because, verse 74, I've hoped in your word. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. God doesn't afflict us because he's cruel. God doesn't afflict us because He doesn't know as well as we do what would make us happy. God doesn't afflict us 
because he was being inattentive to what was going on in our lives. The psalmist says, in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Verse 76, notice the appeal to God's character. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. What he's saying is, God, I need to know you. I need to know you, and I need your character as a God who, who is steadfast love. You know, when the Lord identifies himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he announces himself as a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Let your steadfast love comfort me. Why does he need comfort? He's afflicted. Verse 75, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction. Verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. And then again, God's character in verse 77. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. There it is again. Your law is my delight. We saw that back in verse 70. I delight in your law. Verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. There is delight in the law of the Lord all through this psalm. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are the men of my counsel. And then verse 78, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. Do justice, Lord. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. I'm going cons- to continue to meditate on the scriptures. Verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. Uh, The psalmist is praying that we will learn from him. We want to be those who fear the Lord, right? And the psalmist is working through this, and he's working through what the Lord has done in his life, and he's saying, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. And then this prayer in verse 80, "May may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. Look at back, back at verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame. End of verse 80. That I may not be put to shame. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, Lord, don't let me go the way of the insolent. Don't let me forsake the law. Don't let me develop this impertinent attitude, this bold rudeness. May my heart be blameless in your statutes. Confirm me in the teaching of the scriptures that I may not be put to shame. As I was thinking about uh, this passage and and its message and the way that the Lord uses affliction to train us for righteousness, I thought about the way that Olympians train. And I thought about the way that uh, they eat a specified diet and the way that they, they live a regimented life. I can remember a few years ago um, when uh, Michael Phelps retired from swimming, and they asked him, they said, uh, 
will you miss swimming? And he said, I'll tell you what I'm not going to miss. I'm not going to miss dropping into a freezing cold, cold swimming pool at 6 a.m. You know, the, he, he's communicating that there, there's, a, there's a discipline that he's put himself through that required waking up early in the morning and doing unpleasant things, like getting into a cold swimming pool for a workout. And, and, and there, so, so all of this Olympic training is for what? It's for the hope that you're going to stand on a platform and they're going to play your anthem and they're going to hang an award around your neck. That's what it's for. And I was thinking about this and I was reminded of this statement that John Calvin makes in his institutes. He says, the Lord has ordained that those who are one day to be crowned in heaven should first undergo struggles on earth in order that they may not triumph until they have overcome the difficulties of war and attained victory. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would convince us that you are a good, good Father. And we pray, Lord, that you would convince us that the Scriptures are the, are the way to life. And Lord, if there are those here today that don't know you, I pray that they would hear our testimony. I pray that they would hear from us that the Lord Jesus has satisfied your justice, has paid the penalty for sin, and has made it so that everyone who turns from sin to trust in Christ, to hope in you, can join the ranks of those who fear you, those who are your children, and those who experience your fatherly discipline to be made into something better than than what we could ever be on our own. And Lord, for, for your people here, for all of us, Father, I pray that you would give us this wisdom, give us the wisdom of this passage, a wisdom that says, I recognize the way that I was, a, that I was impudent, the way that I was fearless in my sin before you afflicted me. But because of your affliction, I've come to fear you, come to pay more attention to your word. So it's good for me that I was afflicted. And you have afflicted me in faithfulness. Lord, make these words ring true in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.